Welcome to the second lecture of the fifth week of Rare Book School. We invite you to a lecture here tomorrow night at 8 o'clock, uh, which will in fact be at, at 6 o'clock, excuse me, in, which will in fact be in room 505 Butler next door to this one, in which Stan Nelson will be giving a lecture demonstration on hand type founding augmented by the giant screen. There will, as usual, be a reception immediately following this lecture in room 523, to which uh, all of you are cordially invited to attend. I usually tell my students that uh, attendance at the reception presupposes attendance at the lecture. <laughs> but there's no point in my telling you that, is that, because you're all here. If you think I'm stalling, by the way, you're perfectly correct for the usual reason it's coming down the hall right now. <laughs> Our speaker uh, this evening is no stranger to lions. And we have the usual Rare Book School t-shirt for him. Incidentally, Rare Book School t-shirts will be for sale at the reception in the lounge immediately following this lecture for the modest price of $5 a piece. They came in small, medium, large, and extra large. They now come in a limited range of sizes, but we're taking orders. We will reorder as soon as uh, Rare Book School is over and we can turn around. And we are promised by a perfidious manufacturer that the Rare Book School aprons, which have taken on the luster of the Golden Fleece here this summer, will be in this Friday. So for a mere token, you will be able to wear your Rare Book School apron over your Rare Book School t-shirt <laughs> on the plane home. <laughs> it is great pleasure, meanwhile, to welcome Paul Banks, who's speaking to us tonight on conservation aspects of exhibitions. Mr. Paul Banks. After the, after the commercial. I've never seen anyone wear one of these give, to give a lecture. Will it stay? Uh, <laughs> uh, could we have the lights, please? Are we focused? in a box on a shelf in a library with even reasonably controlled environment this is not very well controlled but ignore that or a manuscript uh, I'm sorry w uh, uh, with even moderate use or a manuscript in a folder in a box on a shelf etc will last for quite a long time even if it is not inherently one of the more stable types of objects. One can see a dramatic illustration of the protection afforded by enclosure in a book housed in a slipcase. The sides, which are protected from light and mechanical damage, and to some extent from atmospheric factors in uh, temperature and humidity changes and pollutants, are in excellent condition relative to the spine, which is exposed. 
On exhibition, by way of contrast, a book or manuscript is usually open, often to a particularly significant page, exposed to light, gaseous, and particulate pollutants, some of which may be generated within the exhibition case itself, often to abnormal temperature and humidity conditions, again, often generated by the act of exhibition itself, and the structure of the book is stressed by prolonged opening. Moreover, the item may have been shipped in a vibrating truck or airplane in heat or cold to get to the exhibition. Let's look in more detail at some of the destructive influences of exhibition. Illumination is likely to be the most glaringly abnormal condition of exhibition if we assume that, normal, that in normal circumstances, that is in storage, books and manuscripts are minimally exposed to light. I'm showing this slide as an example of fading caused by visible light, that is illumination from which ultraviolet has been filtered out. Uh, you can see the, uh, where the green felt has been protected from light uh, and the fading above it. Although in fact, in this case I'm cheating because the green felt has probably been in the cases longer than the UV filtering sleeves have been on the fluorescent tubes. This slide is not cheating. Uh, the tops of these call number slips were exposed, were exposed to fluorescent lights with UV filters that were demonstrated with a UV meter to still be effective. And I think you can see the fading of the top of the slips uh, where they stuck out above the edge of the book. Even less do these next two slides cheat. They are the results of exposure under known conditions at the research laboratories of the Canadian Conservation Institute in Ottawa, for whom I'm grateful for the slides. This row is what happens to these colored inks. This row is what happens to these colored inks with an exposure to nine weeks of average full daylight with ultraviolet filtered out. The next row here is the same exposure, but with the UV present. You can see that eliminating UV reduces damage in most, but not all cases. In some cases, it doesn't even reduce the damage, but it does not eliminate damage. I want to emphasize this point because I think that it is often believed that the elimination of UV eliminates damage from light. This slide shows the effects of illumination with and without UV present on some colored printing inks. Uh, in the top sample, you see serious fading with UV filtration, but darkening uh, where the UV is present. You see here's progressively uh, greater exposures to light with UV removed, but when UV is present, you get darkening, oddly. There's, in other words, there's some other chemical phenomenon going on here. Um, these samples were exposed in the same way as the previous ones of writing inks. Here are some examples of fading leather dyes. This is the 
more or less the original color, and, and this book was masked by books on, on either side of it. Uh, the, the spine and the outsides of the side show the fading of book cloth dies, the end of a, of a shelf, uh, and paper dies. I have emphasized, as indeed the conservation literature does, the effects of light on colors, but the deterioration of books and manuscripts caused by light is not merely fading of colors. The substrate materials themselves are deteriorated also. Nearly all of the materials that go into records are made up of molecules that are long chains called polymers. This is cellulose. And light, along with a number of other factors, is capable of breaking these chains. The, the, these uh, links between the submolecular units are quite vulnerable to breaking. When that happens, the material loses strength and there is as yet no known way to grow the chains back together. All that one can do is reinforce the material from the outside by impregnation or lamination or matting or something of that sort. Nor can the color of faded dyes and pigments be restored in any true sense. All one can do is re-dye. In other words, the damage done by light is irreversible damage. Let's look at some actual exhibition cases to see what we can learn from them. The first thing that we want to look at is internal lighting. I hear some chuckles of recognition. Um, first, the internal illumination level becomes progressively too high as, uh, for books and manuscripts as they get closer to the, to the actual lights. In these cases, as, you, uh, as a matter of fact, you can actually see quite well in this slide. Uh, a photograph, in some cases, is more revealing than the human eye because the human eye uh, sort of and, and, and brain make the adaptation and tend to assume that the light is fairly even, but the, the camera shows the, une the, the higher intensity closer to the tubes. Uh, uh, and in this case, the uh, illuminance at the ends of the shells near the tubes is 600 lux, 12 times the recommended level. Second is the heating effect. Fluorescent tubes are, of course, much cooler than incandescent ones, incandescent bulbs, but they certainly do generate heat. As you can see, uh, uh, this chart is from the hygrothermograph in the case in the previous slide, the temperature rises when the lights go on in the morning and falls when they are turned off at night. You can see here at 9 o'clock on Monday morning when the lights went on, and you can see the temperature going up, and then when the lights are turned off, the temperature starts falling. It is a law of chemistry that the higher the temperature, the faster organic materials deteriorate. So it is obvious that the increase in temperature is undesirable in itself. But fluctuations of temperature influences other factors as well, including relative humidity, as, as you can see on this slide. Uh, the, this, this line is the relative humidity uh, reading. The relationship between temperature and relative humidity in exhibition cases is a complex one that there isn't time to go into here. Suffice it to say that variations in temperature make relative humidity fluctuate, which causes organic materials to swell and shrink, and thus sets up fatigue cycles in materials and structures. In extreme situations, the hinges of vellum bindings can actually rupture, 
from shrinkage caused by extremely low humidity. You can see the, the warping and the, and the breaking here. Also, air expands as it gets warmer and contracts as it cools, the principle on which the hot air balloon works. And this makes exhibition cases breathe. One of the great myths about the keeping of books is that they need to breathe. But I want to assure you that they are not alive. What breathing in exhibition cases does, in, unless special precautions are taken, is to draw in dirt and gaseous pollutants during the inhalation phase when the air inside is cooling. Whoops. But, uh, you can see here all the, all the crud that's been uh, drawn in to the case through the uh, uh, ventilation hole up there. Uh, especially by the, uh, the, the daily respiration cycles that we saw on the uh, uh, hydrothermograph chart. Uh, I, I want to say something. The, the, I, I'm, in a sense, holding these cases up to ridicule, you might say. Uh, um, I, they, they, I gather, are not the responsibility of Butler Library. I gather Butler inherited them. But the other thing I want to say is that uh, there was there was real effort to make them uh, good conservation cases. That is, they they were sealed around the doors. Seals were put in around the doors, and these uh, uh, breathing holes with uh, you know with screens in them were put in. There was an effort to make them uh, uh, good for exhibitions, but the effort was somewhat misguided. The dirt on this pamphlet, although presumably not incurred during exhibition, shows an extreme case of the effects of fine particulates, some of which are smaller than conventional filters can trap, that settle on and become permanently embedded in paper. <coughs> Lying open to one spot for prolonged periods, especially open flat, stresses book structures, albeit probably less than the, most, the very most delicate handling of books, and, of course, the longer a bound volume is open, the more strongly it will take the set of that position with attendant stress when the book is suddenly closed after the exhibition is over. In exhibition cases, the possibility of damaging chemical contamination of books and manuscripts is particularly acute, partly because the objects are so exposed and partly because the interiors of so many library and archives exhibition cases contain wood, plywood, particle board, and other materials that are, in a conservation sense, particularly dirty, one might say. Some woods, for example, emanate acetic acid, which converts metallic lead, as in lead seals on early documents, into white lead carbonate. Silver is, of course, extremely vulnerable to sulfur, and silver leaf in manuscripts, silver bindings, and especially photographic images will be damaged by sulfur fumes that can emanate from a number of sometimes unexpected materials that, that are often used in exhibition cases. All of these damaging factors are subtle and insidious. Books and manuscripts seem so protected when locked away in handsome exhibition cases. But except for occasional extreme situations, the effects of light, pollutants, physical deterioration, and the stress undergone in travel are not noticeable with a single showing. But deterioration does occur cumulatively and irreversibly, albeit infinitesimally, and the longer the exposure, the more damage is incurred. 
there is no magic number below which there is no damage and above which there is. 101 days of exposure will do 1% more damage than 100 days under the same conditions. In order to make the best possible judgments about the risks of lending and the inexorable deterioration of books and manuscripts, um, for exhibition in relation to its educational, cultural, recreational, political, or other benefits, it would be of enormous value to quantify, insofar as possible, the effects of exhibition. And if, in fact, efforts at quantification go back at least as far as 1888 in the Russell and Abney report to the British government on the fading of watercolors. It is worth being aware that the Russell and Abney report the Canadian study of some, uh, some of whose results you saw a moment ago, and most of the rest of what we really know about the effects of exhibition on materials and how to control them comes from the museum field. With the exception of, of one worthwhile book published by the Society of American Archivists, there is practically nothing in the library or archives literature that offers more than very broad generalities that may ultimately be misleading rather than helpful. There's a touch of irony in this when one realizes that books and manuscripts are so vastly more vulnerable to damage uh, because they have to be handled in use, where use in the museum usually involves simply viewing and, and the objects are isolated from their users. I've talked some about the hazards of exhibition, the consumption part of my title. But there is no doubt that exhibition is an, is an enormously important function for libraries and archives as the New York Public Library is so effectively demonstrating with the public attention that the opening of its new exhibition facilities and its current censorship exhibits are earning. Even conservation people are using them to further their ends, although, uh, although we sometimes like to show uh, objects that are beyond preservation. Um, while it is clearly important to understand the hazards, it is also true that sufficient attention to the software and the hardware of exhibitions, the policy issues and the equipment and facilities can reduce the inescapable deterioration of books and manuscripts to reasonable proportions. Under the heading of exhibition facilities, let us look first at what in many respects is the ultimate in exhibition facilities, the shrine of the Charters of Freedom in the rotunda of the National Archives in Washington the Charters of Freedom, in case you didn't know, being the, uh, <laughs> uh, being the uh, Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. Um, you probably know that the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States are sealed in heavy glass and bronze cases in an inert atmosphere of helium to prevent oxidation. This is from the publication by the Bureau of Standards in 51 that did the research work and, and the sealing. Uh, and with layers of paper of quite pure cellulose to act as a humidity buffer. If you have visited the rotunda, you know that the room is quite dim overall and that the documents are under deep yellow filtration. So far as we could tell when we examined the charters a couple of years ago, there had been no gross deterioration since they were sealed over 30 years ago. But an interesting dilemma that the, the archives and the Archives Preservation Advisory Committee is dealing with is 
how, in fact, to determine and track the uh, uh, condition of documents that are so th thoroughly sealed away from uh, any, uh, so that you can't get to them. I will speak now as if one were designing new exhibition facilities. Even though one may not often have that option, the discussion may help in evaluating the urgency of replacing inadequate facilities or perhaps suggest some ways in which they could be improved. All things considered, there seems no doubt that in libraries and archives, books and manuscripts should be shown in closed exhibition cases, so that these then become the basic unit of protection that we'll talk about. The most technically complex issue in the design of exhibition facilities is the basic means of controlling temperature and relative humidity in, in the cases. There are two basic approaches, mechanical systems and so-called passive systems. Each approach has advantages and disadvantages, but the primary criteria for which system to choose uh, are how closely temperature and humidity can be controlled in the room in which the cases will be located and how tightly sealed the cases will be. Incidentally, it is a matter of more difficulty than may at first be apparent to make really tightly sealed cases, especially if, it is, if, it is to, if the case is to be uh, easily openable. It must be fabricated of glass and metal with carefully worked joints, and, uh, and with carefully worked joints. And genuinely hermetically sealed cases are not normally practical, as, as you can see here. You can see the lengths that have to be gone to to make a real airtight seal. If ambient conditions cannot be closely controlled, the extreme example perhaps being a room in a cold climate with only heating in the winter and no other climate control, then mechanical systems will almost certainly be required to maintain suitable microclimate in the cases. There are in turn two basic types of mechanical systems, what, what was once dubbed the black box, a small self-contained mechanical unit to fit into the base of an individual case, and ducted systems in which uh, air comes, which I see I spelled here A-R-E, comes from a central conditioning unit through ducts to individual cases. My word processor spelled it A-R-E. Uh, ducted mechanical systems should be designed for the minimum airflow that is necessary to maintain desired conditions, and intake air should be carefully cleaned and filtered in order to minimize the drawing in of pollutants. Precautions against fire are important also, various kinds of ducting and uh, dampers and that sort of thing. The disadvantages of mechanical systems are indeed some fire risks and bringing pollutants in. The best practical cleaning systems are not perfect, as well as energy co uh, consumption and inevitable periodic malfunctions. The approach that is widely used in museums is based on the principle that in a tightly sealed case, sufficient volume of certain hygroscopic materials, such as silica gel or cellulose, will buffer relative humidity at a constant level unless ambient conditions are dramatically different from the desired ones. This so-called passive method has the obvious advantage of simplicity, absence of vibration, noise, and fire risks, and so on. But buffering will be of no help at all uh, for excessive heat, and internal RH will, will, will tend to drift toward the ambient or plunge toward it when the case is open to change exhibits, if there's a big difference between the interior and exterior. 
A system that might be considered a hybrid of the two approaches consists of bleeding just enough conditioned air into tight and buffered cases to make up for their natural leakage rate and provide slight positive pressure to keep out pollutants. This idea has much to commend it, including much lighter mechanical equipment and ducting. We may see more of it once experience has been gained in actual installations. Exhibition cases should not be placed directly against exterior walls, particularly in colder northern climates, uh, because you'll get condensation uh, uh, on the inside of the case. You're likely to get condensation. If they must be so placed, there should at least be good insulation on the inside of the exterior wall, an effective vapor barrier on the back of the case, and, and a good free airspace between the wall and the case. The materials used for the fabrication of the cases, especially for their interiors, need to be chosen for, for minimum contamination of displayed objects. Where non-ventilated cases are involved, or where display of, of objects for longer than a few months is contemplated, materials other than those known to be essentially inert, such as metal, that is, the materials known to be essentially inert, metal, glass, acrylic, sheeting, and so on, uh, other materials should be tested. Relatively simple test methods for determining the evolution of organic acids and reducible sulfur can be carried out in a conservation laboratory. However, where exhibition cases have forced ventilation and assuming that barriers such as pieces of mat board are used between objects and the lining material of the cases, it seems probable that no significant damage will be caused by exhibition within the time limits that are reasonable from the standpoint of exposure to light. Whatever methods of controlling exhibition cases are uh, is used, whatever method is used, uh, careful monitoring of temperature and, and humidity in them seem essential. Uh, this slide may begin to be seeming a little bit familiar by now. I also should point out that you do not need to use uh, uh, large hygrothermographs like this to monitor, uh, although it's useful to use a hygrothermograph at some point to get an idea of the daily cycles. A hygrometer, uh, uh, the smaller hygrometers will not give that uh, uh, indication. The design of exhibition cases for optimum environmental conditions, for convenient and safe installation of books and manuscripts, and at the same time for visual appeal, is a challenging task and I want to emphasize two points. One, optimum conditions can be largely engineered. I say largely because there is always an element of art in engineering. And two, doing so is a highly specialized form of engineering that will require specialized consultants from the world of museum or library conservation. On the first point, research has been carried out and some actual formulas exist for such things as the volume of air, upper and lower ambient temperatures, mass of particular humidity buffering materials, location of cases with respect to exterior walls and light sources, air exchange rates, all of which are germane to obtaining suitable, stable conditions in the finished cases, uh, which incidentally, of course, will not be easy to modify once they've been installed. On the second point, I want to emphasize again that architects and engineers in general will not have appropriate experience with designing exhibition cases to maintain conservation conditions, although they are likely to assert that they do. And the client must insist that suitable knowledge is sought from the conservation field. Factors that must be taken into account in lighting for display 
our level of light, spectral distribution or source, uh, visual quality, and heating effects. All of these factors are interrelated to some degree, and while visual quality is not specifically a conservation matter, conservation requirements impose conditions that call for careful attention in order to make exhibition lighting visually acceptable. The internationally recognized standard of 50 lux for sensitive materials is an undeniably low level of light for the viewing of books, and in addition may create a generally gloomy atmosphere, ambience. In order to minimize the perception of inadequate lighting, the ability of the human eye to adapt to a wide range of light levels can be tricked into accepting the low level. The most important trick is to place the exhibition room or facilities so that the viewer is not coming to them directly from a much brighter area. For example, viewers should have to enter the exhibition room through a moderately lit anteroom rather than, to make the worst case, directly from outdoor sunlight. Exhibits should never be exposed to direct sunlight, which is far too intense in the particularly damaging ultraviolet and infrared ends of the spectrum, as well as in the visible portion. Although it is technically possible safely to use indirect lighting, uh, indirect daylighting, by controlling its level, the means, expensive and troublesome systems of photocell-operated automatic blinds seem to make it impractical in most cases. For this reason, because of greater ability to control temperature and relative humidity, exhibition rooms should be windowless. Light sources should never be located within the actual compartments in which materials are exhibited because of the problems with both light, light intensity and heat, as we've seen. If fluorescent lighting is used, the lamps can be placed in a chamber at the top of the exhibition compartment with suitable barriers between the two chambers and with adequate ventilation above to take off the heat generated by the tube so it doesn't go into the exhibition chamber. Ballasts for fluorescent tubes should be of the internally fused type to prevent overheating, and even then the ballast should be placed as far away from the display chamber as possible to avoid heat transfer and reduce the possibility of fire or smoke damage. I know whereof I speak, at the Newberry uh, in Chicago, we a couple of times had uh, ballast start smoking and fill exhibition cases with uh, smoke. Incandescent lighting not only produces more heat per unit of light than fluorescent tubes, it also generates significant amounts of infrared radiation that can heat the objects upon which it falls and create a greenhouse effect in the exhibition case. Nevertheless, the ability to manipulate incandescent lighting for best visual and aesthetic advantage and to place it sufficiently distant from the cases, outside the cases, uh, uh, usually makes it the source of choice. If either fluorescent or daylight sources are used, then of course all ultraviolet should be removed with suitable filters. In order to minimize unpleasant aspects of the low light levels that are required for safe exhibition of books and manuscripts, a skilled exhibition lighting designer should be part of the team that designs the exhibition facilities. It's not my purpose here to discuss the visual effectiveness of display methods, but only to provide a few suggestions for means of installing library materials in exhibition cases in ways that will minimize damage to them. This is largely a matter of common sense, as for instance, not sticking pins through manuscripts or for forcing books open too far. 
However, discussion of a few specific points may be useful. Most books that are to be exhibited open must be in some way held open to the desired spread. Narrow strips of safe, transparent plastic film, such as cellulose acetate, polyethylene, or polyester, serve well. They may be wrapped around the book and held with pressure-sensitive tape attached to itself on the back. One must be wary, however, of the cutting edges of the harder plastic film, such as polyester. Cradles, designed to minimize the stress imposed by being open to one position for a month or more, are often the safest way to display bound books. The factors that influence the design of a protective cradle are whether the book is to be shown vertically or horizontally, whether an opening near the beginning or end or near the center of the book is to be shown, and the particular characteristics of the book, for example, whether it has weak hinges or an inflexible spine. For books that are to be shown horizontally, opened near the center, and that lie open easily, a cradle may not be necessary. If the leaves need, leaves need to be held with plastic strips, the strips may be placed around a piece of flat board, which will serve both as a barrier and a rudimentary cradle. When the title page or other opening near the beginning, or for that matter the end, of a book is to be shown, it is often important to support the cover so that it doesn't fall back beyond 180 degrees. A simple block, the thickness of the text block of the book, can serve to support the cover, or a simple cradle can be provided. Is that, I guess that's... Whoops. Where are we? Let's see if that's... I guess that's in focus. Um, I think my slides are out of order here. Yes, that's what I want. Um, cradles are most essential for books that open stiffly and, and ones of extreme antiquity, value, or delicacy. In such cases, the, with such books, the cradle should be designed to support the book's board at an angle of less than 180 degrees, and it may have to be asymmetrical if the book is to be shown open toward the front or back. Cradles and supports can be constructed from a number of materials, including various kinds of, of mat, binders, and box boards, covered balsa wood, and acrylic plastic. The Restoration Office of the Library of Congress has developed a series of formulas for scored board cradles that can be constructed fairly quickly once the techniques are, are mastered. Uh, that's the last slide I have, so maybe we could have the lights. Uh, I want to show you this. You'll, some of you who are in the exhibits class uh, will be seeing this in more detail tomorrow. Uh, but for those of you who, who aren't, uh, if you've seen the censorship exhibit at the, in the Gottesman Gallery at the New York Public, you've seen, whoops, I've got it upside down. Uh, you've seen these rather intriguing looking devices. Um, the, I, when I saw it, I thought the, when I saw the, the adjustability of it, I thought that it was an attempt to be a, a universal cradle, which is, it seems to me, a goal much to be sought so that you don't have to create new cradles for each book for each exhibit. 
uh, and there are aspects of this that are very interesting, but I think everyone agrees, including the New York public people, uh, that this is an interesting first step toward something that may be better. It's not the, uh, it's not the ultimate answer. Uh, the designers of this apparently suffer from the same syndrome that I do, which is that when you, the, on the first attempt with something, it turns out to be incredibly elaborate. These things apparently have something like 40 parts. Uh, and I, I know myself well enough now to know that I have to step back and look at my first solution to a problem and, and keep paring away at all of the non-essential details to simplify and simplify. And I think that's what's going to happen here. But I think the, this is an interesting start toward what may turn out to be, if not a universal cradle, at least an adjustable cradle that can be used for uh, a, a wide variety of, of books. Um, for books shown vertically, cradles formed of acrylic plastic are ideal but costly and require skill to fabricate satisfactorily. For the exhibit of Rosenwald books at the Library of Congress a few years ago, books whose bindings were often nearly as important as the contents, the Restoration Office made magnificent vertical cradles that, uh, uh, of acrylic plastic uh, that permitted the open books to be viewed from both sides in their freestanding upright cases, so you could see both the binding in the front. But the cradle, uh, each cradle was tailored to provide good support for the particular book to be shown in it. I'm going to move on now from, from the hardware to the software, from uh, equipment and facilities to some aspects of the policy of exhibits. The most important point of policy for internal exhibition is the length of time materials are allowed to be on display. There may be pressures to keep particular exhibits up for long periods, not the least of which is the effort involved in putting up new ones. While there, can be some, <laughs> while there can be some flexibility in relation to the, to the sensitivity of specific items being displayed and the conservation quality of the facilities, it is important that there is consciousness of the relationship between vulnerability of materials on the one hand and total exposure to light and to the other damaging factors in the exhibition on the other. The literature on exhibition conservation rightly talks about the level of illumination, the number of foot candles or lux. But what really matters, and what is not always made clear in the literature, what I think is taken for granted, uh, uh, what, what is assumed in the literature, is, is the total dose. The law of physics known as reciprocity indicates that the extent of any damage from light will be a product of the intensity of the light times the length of exposure. If the illumination on the objects is at the recommended level for sensitive objects of 50 lux, and they are exposed to this level for 60 hours a week, about four months would limit the total dose of light to the 50,000 lux hours uh, that is recommended in the literature for such sensi sensitive objects as modern manuscripts written with fugitive inks, designer book bindings, and mechanical wood pulp paper. But if the illumination level were at 150 lux, still not, incidentally, uh, what would be considered bright light, uh, the time would have to be reduced to about one and a half months to stay within the uh, 50,000 total lux hour dose, the 50,000 lux hour total dose. You can see how the law of reciprocity works, I think. A clear implication of these facts is that no item of value should be permanently displayed 
at least not without the extraordinary precautions taken with the Declaration of Independence in the Constitution. It is ironic that some libraries have on, on permanent display some of their greatest book and manuscript treasures. If items are displayed longer than is prudent for their preservation, or if particularly vulnerable items are to be displayed, several compromise strategies will help to reduce damage. The most effective of these strategies is rotation of items exhibited. Sometimes a similar item can be substituted for the one initially displayed. For example, leaves of an unbound manuscript may be changed where an example of the author's working methods or handwriting rather than a particular passage is being shown. Other editions or other works of an author may be substituted sometimes for the initial ones, similarly with prints and drawings. Turning leaves of a book or a bound manuscript helps to reduce light and to some extent other damage to individual leaves, but does little to reduce the stress on binding structure and the effects of light on the exposed parts of the binding and the edges of, edges of the leaves. Two other strategies may be useful in some cases to reduce the exposure of materials to light. Curtains over the glass of exhibition cases to be pulled aside when the visitor wants to view the contents are used in the British Museum, the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston and elsewhere. These seem a little bit homely uh, to be sure, but uh, they're effective and they're certainly good precedent for them. They're certainly prestigious precedent for them. Uh, viewer act activated time switches may be useful in some cases and, and may seem a little bit less homely than, than curtains that the viewer pulls aside. Uh, to provide short-term illumination on exhibits that otherwise can be kept in very low light levels. Although unpopular with most people, the exhibition of carefully made facsimiles might be considered for long-term exhibits or ones that travel to a number of locations in which conservation conditions cannot be assured. If an explanation were provided, viewers might come to respect the institution for protecting priceless cultural property and to learn something about the problems of preservation. Then again, the viewers might not uh, like the idea either. The lending of materials for exhibition in other institutions incurs a definite hazard, the transportation of items to the borrowing institution, and a possible hazard, inadequate display conditions in the borrowing institution. Because of these risks, it is desirable for a library to develop specific policies and procedures concerning lending for exhibition. The policy statement should be based on weighing the advantages of lending, education, public relations, and so on, against the risks of deterioration, damage, or even loss. The nature of the procedures will depend in large measure upon whether the library has a conservator or conservation department. The uh, the conservation personnel may appropriately be involved in five aspects of lending items for exhibition, especially valuable ones. Determining whether items are sound enough to withstand travel and exhibition, including the handling involved in packing, unpacking, mounting, dismounting, repacking, and re-unpacking, perhaps several times in a traveling show, incidentally. Determining, insofar as possible, the vague, from the vague information usually available, the conservation condi conditions under which the items will be shown. Making a condition report and photographs of the item before it is packed. Packing or supervising the packing of the items. Safe packing of valuable items is a topic in itself, and again, one upon which there is consider there's been considerable research in the museum world. Examining the condition of items when they are returned by the borrower. 
determination of whether an object is safe to travel must be made in the knowledge that the risks of travel can be minimized but never eliminated. Illuminated manuscripts on vellum are perhaps the items most vulnerable to damage through the vibration and changing environmental conditions of transportation. The arrangements made for the transportation and display of the Book of Kells and other early Celtic manuscripts, specially designed travel and display cases, <coughs> scouting and monitoring conditions where the items were to be displayed, and the use of couriers, uh, suggest caution in allowing manuscripts to travel where such elaborate precautions cannot be taken, particularly if there is any evidence of insecurity of the paint as revealed by microscopic examination. Uh, other items that are of particular concern are manuscripts written in fugitive inks or on groundwood paper, watercolors, and some photographs because of their vulnerability to light, and pastels and delicate bindings that are easily damaged by handling. The most problematical of the procedures enumerated above may be the determination of the conditions under which materials will be shown at the borrowing institution. Few libraries or archives have accurate quantitative knowledge of the actual variations in temperature and humidity in their exhibition cases over different seasons of the year, nor the actual levels of light to which items will be exposed. It is usually necessary to rely on a questionnaire carefully formulated to elicit as much quantitative information as possible in order to get collections increases. Uh, more institutions will have solid quantitative information on exhibition conditions. In the meantime, increasingly pointed questioning from libraries that are concerned about conservation uh, and that are asked to lend materials may encourage borrowing institutions to improve and quantify their conditions. Once the decision to lend has been made, the condition of items to be lent should be documented verbally and with photographs. The condition report and photographs provide the essential basis for determining upon return of the material whether any damage or deterioration has occurred while it was out of the library and for settling any claims that might result from such damage. Uh, I see I'm not for once running overtime, so I want to, on, on the hazards of of uh, travel for exhibition, I want to uh, uh, relate to you a, a, a wonderful story for, from about 20 years ago. A very prestigious uh, uh, rare book library borrowed uh, the copy, one of the nine, I guess it is, extant copies of the Bay Psalm book for exhibition from another very prestigious rare book library. The, the story, there was a Rare Books Conference, and the story broke at the Rare Books Conference, and unfortunately the reality was not quite as, wonderful, as wonderfully awful as the story. Uh, the story that went around like wildfire, needless to say, with the, with the names uh, attached, of course, uh, uh, was that the borrowing library had put the Baysom book in a jiffy bag and sent it back uninsured through the mail to the lending library. Uh, it wasn't a jiffy bag, but the book was not put back in its own protective case. It was inadequately wrapped, and it was sent uninsured. It was damaged in shipment, and that I can attest to because I saw it when it was brought to Chicago to be restored by Donnelly's after the damage, uh, which may say something about relying on the prestige of, of borrowing institutions relying on prestige alone. Uh, 
Exhibition is important for education, public relations, and other purposes in many libraries and archives. At the same time, books and manuscripts on display are exposed and vulnerable to a variety of damaging influences. Considerably more attention has been given by museums to exhibition conservation than by libraries, despite the fact that books, unlike most museum objects, have to withstand the rigors of use. Generally speaking, then, it is to museum conservation that we must turn for technically sound information and advice on exhibition conservation. Exhibit facilities, mainly cases, are the front line of defense against damage during display, uh, although they also can be, as we've seen, uh, uh, they, they also can strongly contribute to deterioration. So their design is of crucial importance. Although displaying materials consumes them at least a little, careful conservation measures based on accurate knowledge can reduce consumption to so infinitesimal a degree that we can say that materials are being conserved to the best of our ability. Thank you. <laughs>